0: back, long-suffering listeners, to the show that you've been waiting for with the most grandiose introduction of all internet podcast radio shows on the internet today. It is Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and I am bringing to you the two most uh, insightful, interesting to listen to, and wonderful to discuss <laughs> with uh, co-hosts there are you could possibly imagine, um, the illustrious Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and Trish Lambert. And now you will finally get to hear us dive into Desolation of Smog. So let's just get right to it.
1: Okay, good. One very quick announcement at the beginning is that we have a new feature on the MythGuard.org uh, website. Many people have been asking for and hoping for a chat window so that you guys can uh, talk amongst yourselves during the during the episode. Um, and we now have that capability. So if you go to the Riddles in the Dark page on MythGuard.org um, it is MythGuard.org slash exclusives slash Riddles in the Dark, but if you just Google MythGuard and Riddles in the Dark you'll find it. Um in fact, I was delighted to see when I just googled Riddles in the Dark this morning that our page was the third on the Google list, actually. Um, oh, awesome. Which, given the fact, you know, that, that's obviously the name of the chapter of Tolkien's book, I thought that was that was, that was pretty cool. So anyway, um, if, you, um, if you google Mythgard and Riddles in the Dark, you'll find it, and then on the bottom right-hand corner of that page is our new chat interface. So click on that, and you can enter into the chat with anybody else who wants to. So... Um, so we have that new feature. So I hope you will take advantage of that. And uh, uh, and and now we'll begin on the other. Um, okay, yeah, actually, that's the only announcement I had here at the beginning. So what we're wanting to do? Face to... It,
0: people, people, would much <laughs> prefer to be talking to each other than uh, listening to
1: us. Well, you know exactly. <laughs> we will we will carry on talking and provide a background, uh, uh, you know, to the chat that you guys Bad can have there. Movies.
2: Well, and actually, I guess the chat is up uh, 24-7, 365, so like if somebody, if two people wanted to listen to the podcast simultaneously, you know, then they could
1: get on the chat room. That's right. Asynchronous, and, riddles you know, in the dark, chatting. Why not? Absolutely. Right. <laughs> absolutely. You just want to randomly decide to hang out in our chat window and chat with people, there you're absolutely are. free to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... What we're gonna to do today is we're going to follow up, you know last week we had uh, a very theoretical discussion about uh, you know reactions to the films and about uh, you know uh, th- things to do and not to do. And by the way, can I just say that the more I have thought about our crit fiction discussion, uh, the the happier I have been with it. i, I am I am just uh, I've had some really great exchanges from uh, with listeners who have been talking about it on Twitter, especially. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there, there has seemed to be a lot of people who have, who have really kind of resonated with that concept. And I, I just, I, 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 the more, the more I've thought about it, the more useful I find it. So I just, I just wanted to kind of, um, mention that again, because I, I, I think that that's really useful. But, um, Today we're going to go and we're going to we're going to do some more specific analysis. We're essentially going to do in practice the kind of general thing we were talking about last time. We said last time that really the only fair way to discuss these things, um, rather than just getting bogged down in the similarity in the sort of the superficial similarities and differences, even where the superficial differences are profound. Um, is to really compare the cores. Trish was quoting the letter where, uh, where, uh, where Tolkien talks about that, about you know the, the importance of of an adaptation being true to the core uh, of the original. And so our question is basically, what is the core of the original, and or and 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 what really are the thematic cores of the Desolation of Smaug? And I would emphasize cores because. You know, to try to take either the film or the book and just sort of try to condense it into one, uh, you know, singular theme or idea um, is uh, obviously, I think, too much of a simplification. I mean, I, I I couldn't point... I mean, I've thought a lot about The Hobbit, of course, and I I, I couldn't point to, like, one single thing which represents the core of, of, of The Hobbit. And I think it's... You know, even... You know, sometimes people will quote Tolkien's words... Um, when talking about the Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion or any of that stuff, and say, well, Tolkien said that the major theme was death and mortality, which he did say that several times. Um, but one thing I would recall there is that even when Tolkien talked about that, um, he immediately qualified that, or not qualified that, but he immediately almost, well, not exactly laughed at himself, but he almost made light of it by saying, you know, the he, he said the central theme of the Lord of the Rings is mortality. And then he adds but really that's just as much as to say it was written by a human <laughs> you know that is, yeah. you know, basically the point that he makes is that you know on some level all works of art by human beings are interested in mortality as sort of a central thing that it's it is it is it is a deep core interest of all mortal beings um and so therefore of course it is a major feature of the lord of the rings as well um in other words, even to say what Tolkien said, even even when Tolkien said what he said about what the core of the Lord of the Rings was, he was recognizing that that's you know a, a very big generalization, and that's really taking the whole thing out to a to a to a level which doesn't really do justice to the whole story, you know, to everything that he talks about. So, therefore, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a couple different sort of uh, themes and ideas in the film. We're going to start with the film. And then go backwards to the book because you know, we've talked about the book a lot. Uh, you know, I wrote a book about the book, and um, you know, so we already have. I I I hope uh, among us a pretty good groundwork of having thought carefully about um, the book first. So I want to apply, uh, you know, some similar careful thought about the films, looking at at a couple major movements in the films, thinking about what are really the core thematic interests uh, of the movie. And then we'll bring those back and compare those to the to some of those core thematic ideas of the book. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. And I, I, there are three themes um, that I've kind of isolated, or three, uh, as I say, sort of movements in the film. And the first one I want to talk about is the Gandalf versus the Necromancer, the kind of light versus darkness theme that we get um, in the confrontation between Gandalf and the Necromancer, really thinking uh, sort of in larger terms of... Uh, of that entire element because of course there are ways in which that and it doesn't have to be just a consideration of of when Gandalf actually fights against the necromancer um really that the whole Gandalf movement but also the way in which that particular theme is also touched upon um in uh, in the other stories because of course the with the way that 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 the Gandalf passages are interwoven uh, with the rest of the storytelling in the in the movie, it really invites us to think about those side by side. I mean, I think, for instance, about the 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 most um, at least what I thought was the most noticeable cut between the Bilbo and Thorin story and the Gandalf story in the film was that moment when they are looking out over the ruins of Dale. And, you know, this is the desolation of the dragon. And Bilbo suggests waiting for Gandalf, which is what Gandalf told them to do, in fact. And Thorin, you know, says, do you see the wizard? No, neither do I. Let's go. Um, And at that moment, you know, when Bilbo is sitting there obviously saying, like, where's Gandalf? And I wonder what's going on. That's when we cut to Gandalf going into Del Guldur. Um, So I think that my point there is simply... The fact that G- Gandalf entering Dol Guldur and and uh, trying to expose the necromancer and uh, fight against evil is obviously being paralleled by that cut with them entering into the mountain. You know they've come to the brink of the desolation of Smaug just as Gandalf goes into Dol Guldur. So, um, so again, that that um, um, is just one example of how I would suggest we can we can sort of think about some of the Gandalf and Thorin things in conjunction with this theme as well. So, okay. First, observations. Before we draw any conclusions, we have to, make, we have to, we have to sort of collect our data. What, what, what elements of the film do you think contribute to this? Um, I mean, obviously we've got the fight between Gandalf and the Necromancer, right? The, the final standoff um, is, I think, really the central element of this theme, so we might as well start with that. And the visuals there, I think, are, 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 are quite striking. And it's interesting to me that we... And this, this is slightly tangential. But the way in which they depict Gandalf's magic functioning in his uh, exploration of Dol Guldur, and in particular in his fight with the Necromancer there at the end, um, is very interesting to me. And it's a little bit, I thought, a little bit of a departure um, one of the challenges, and this has been a serious challenge for translating uh, Tolkien's works into film from the beginning, is how do you deal with magic? So much of the magic uh, in, in Tolkien's world is is, is, is not visible. It, it's, 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 it's spiritual and abstract. Um, you know, in one of the one one, you know, to, to to point to one obvious scene, the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman, There's, you know, both of them are using magic, as hobbits would call it. Um, but no, there's 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 nothing visual seen. Everything that happens is mental, uh, and a struggle of wills between the two of them. Um, in order to put that on film, you can't show what's going on inside people's heads. Um, and you certainly it's very difficult to depict a sort of abstract struggle of wills and so therefore um, if you just if you just depicted exactly what is described in the book what you will show on screen is two people talking to each other and that won't give you any kind of the sense of you know the 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 significance of what's actually going on there in the in in the actual book so in the well, I guess it wasn't in the Two Towers film, was it? It was in the very beginning of the Return of the King film. Um, mm-hmm. In uh, the extended you have edition... You
0: opportunity to use your, your uh, wonderful, your sizable special effects budget.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, also see,
0: very important.
1: Exactly. In the Return of the King film, um, Saruman throws a fireball at Gandalf, which then just like bursts around him and doesn't affect him. And I've always felt that um, that was an understandable but really clumsy way to try to convey this. Um, And I thought, again, I I sort of sympathized. I mean, I, I remember my first reaction when I saw Saruman throw a fireball at Gandalf in the film. And that was... My first reaction was, oh, that was really lame. And then my second reaction was kind of sympathy. Like, you know, I see what you're trying to do there. I, I understand that you want to show that this is, in fact, on, on some level, a wizard's duel. But, uh, but that was really kind of lame. Um, and uh, I, um, I think that it's interesting that they went in a different direction in the Desolation of Smaug when they were trying to show a magical confrontation between Gandalf and the Necromancer. Um, and of course a lot of people have been making fun of the, the sort of you know, inky cloud thing that is attacking Gandalf and it, you know, looking like Gandalf is fighting off a, 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 a magical cloud of ink. But I mean, what is clearly being done there is sort of showing the conflict between their wills in a way which is visible... And I actually found it less uh, irritating than the fireball, even though it, it 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 runs the risk of being a lot more hokey than even what he did in the Return of the King. But I think it does a far better job of of illustrating visually, which again I think is so challenging, illustrating um, visually what is what is actually going on there? And the way that they represented it visually as light and darkness. Um, And I actually liked the CG treatment of the darkness, you know, that it was not just Gandalf in the middle of, you know, a solid cloud of blackness, but the way that, uh, that you could see, you know, it is like darkness made visible. It is as if, Darkness, we're trying to form a tangible shape so that it looked like a mist rather than just an absence of light. Uh, you know, this sort of positive mist of darkness that is trying to encroach upon Gandalf and which he is beating off with uh, with the light. And you have this, you know, this pure sphere of light around Gandalf, which, um, which you know, the darkness is trying to close in on Um you know, again, there, there there are lots of critiques one could make on a purely visual level, um, you know, that and, and, and it's easy, I think, to laugh at the visuals in that scene. Though, again, I, I don't know how I would do it. Uh, I, I don't know well, how I, I would do it better.
2: I didn't really... I mean, for me, the um, there's two things about that scene that evoke for me the Lord of the Rings movies. And while I'm just talking movies here, I'm not talking books... Um, what you're talking about, I think, is, and I can't remember if Kate Blanchett says it in the prologue, but the whole thing about once the ring was cut off his finger, he couldn't take, you know, corporeal shape. Um, you know, for me, having an inky cloud, it was kind of like, well, what else are you going to do? Because I already knew he couldn't take actually a, you know, a sustainable human form. I, I looked upon that um, ever increasing eye with the armor on thing more like a, a, a you know illusion, yes, as, as opposed to that he was actually physically standing there. Um, I think I think that's gonna that scene I think is gonna make more sense once future generations see these movies in quote unquote Middle Earth chronological order, right? Um, and and you almost want to have the prologue from Lord of the Rings from Fellowship of the Ring before this scene even happens, (laughs) you know, because then it makes more sense. Um, The second thing was um, the fight evoked for me the fight that he has with Sourman and Orthanc. I mean, poor old Gandalf gets, same thing, you know, he ends up pinned up against a wall. Right. The one difference is, of course, he gets, you know, tree-rooted versus getting spun up to the top of Orthanc. But again, I think people in, in, you know, in the future, future generations seeing this movie, if they see this movie first... It's going to be one of the things that makes makes it obvious Saruman has gone over to Sauron's side is that he kind of has a very similar similarly choreographed fight with Gandalf, ending in the same, you know, Gandalf pinned up against a wall thing. So I thought that was kind of an interesting uh,
1: parallel. Yeah, I do. I do. I also, I also do agree with that. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you know, to, to thinking of... Thinking of of how this works, not just thinking of of the special effects and how they're depicting magic, but thinking about again thematically what's going on here, and 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 let's let's put the the confrontation there, that final confrontation between Gandalf and the Necromancer, in the larger context of Gandalf's whole trip into Dol Guldur. Um, and this, I thought, was very interestingly done. You know, thinking of the scene, <clears throat> you know, the scene that was included in most of the trailers, the uh, you know. It's most definitely a trap scene. <clears throat> what are we understanding? How are we to understand? Do you guys think what Gandalf is doing there? Does he uh, 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 he he knows? Is he is he try Does he know he's going to be taken captive? Is he is he springing the trap because he goes in believing he can handle it? <clears throat> is this a self-sacrificial yeah, you know, move a good on Gandalf's question. part?
2: I mean, that may be answered in the third movie, but for me, the part that was missing, I, and I can only make this up, which, of course, you've taught me not to do, so I'm very, very <laughs> wary about doing this, but because of the High Fells trip, you know, the trip they yeah. took to the High Fells, I would have liked there to have been some indication, if this was true, that he was going into Guldur expecting to meet the Witch King, not Sauron. You know, to me, that would have, first of all, tied together the whole trip to the Fells, Second yeah. of all, would explain why he would go in thinking he would be able to, you know, counter the evil forces is because he's expecting to see the witch king, not right. the big bad. Right. But he never said that, so I have to make that up, and that's not, you know, I mean, it's that's not obvious to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, so. and, I mean, and of course, the you know the other. Uh, that's hard because it's one of those moments which which, you you always have to be so cautious about where it's tempting to import information that we have not from the movies but from the books you know where where we know that you know according to the books Gandalf and Elrond and the rest of them were suspecting that the necromancer was one of the ringwraiths um so so yeah so we 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 are te- might be tempted to fill that blank in that way, but of course we don't know that that's in fact the decision that the filmmakers were uh, were making and and had, and had in mind. Um, yeah. And
2: without that, I mean, it is a little bit ludicrous. I mean, it is a little bit ludicrous if, 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 if what Jackson wants us to believe is he really thought it was Sauron going into it. Then your question is even more. It's like, why on earth, you know, would he would he do that? And I think you're, I mean, we can't answer it, but it, did, he, did he do it knowing it was a trap and that was going to, like, draw the rest of the White Council? I don't know.
1: I can't imagine that, though. When he sends Radagast off after Galadriel, I don't think that Gandalf would actually believe right. that he needs to put himself as bait in order to draw Galadriel there. Um, right. He, he, he knows she'll help. So, uh, so I mean the the question would be then well okay so why doesn't if Ganolf is going to send Radagast after Galadriel why doesn't he wait for one thing um, right. he, uh, he could just wait for Galadriel and go in together um, uh, is and it's you know I'm kind of hoping f- well of course I've talked about this many times I'm I I, I am coming into the. Uh, Period of waiting for the extended edition of the Desolation right. of Smaug, with the hope that we're going to get about an hour more footage. You know, because like when I when w- when I add up the total number of things that I trust, assume, and hope we're going to get learn more about in the extended edition, the list gets very long, actually. So, and not uh, just
2: an hour more footage, but an hour more footage of actually useful information, not right. naked dwarves, not <laughs> right, exactly. you know, marketplaces, places, stuff like. Yes, that.
1: yes, yeah. No, I do have to <laughs> say the yeah. the extended edition of the of the first film was very disappointing in that way but sorry dave go ahead
0: um i was just i i wanted to comment go back to your comment about the the light versus dark visuals um it makes me think of your your most recent um i guess most recent tolkien chat where someone asked about the comment that gandalf makes about um i am gandalf the white but black is still is stronger further. yes um, I I kind of wonder if they if they were thinking of that line when they when they chose when they um, wrote up this scene and designed the visuals and that kind of stuff. And I I'll be honest with you, like I didn't. I'm one of the the inky cloud complainers, um, and I think part of it is just because basically, if you've seen Lost, you can't. It's impossible not to think of the smoke monster from Lost, and and um and and you know and and and. Then, then you, then you're now thinking of Sauron in, as the smoke monster, uh, which is not really the most like, like dignified name to assign to a, a big evil, bad guy. Right. So, you know, basically, basically, it, it's not necessarily their fault or a bad thing, but it's just my mind has been polluted by, um, <laughs> by another piece of, piece of uh, art. Um, yes. Well, I
1: I, I I do know. I mean, I, I haven't seen Lost, so I didn't get I didn't have that. But I know that you know I have several friends who have. A, and between the presence of Evangeline Lilly and then the smoke monster, they they, they 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 found that they also found that connection absolutely inescapable.
0: They, thank God they didn't have Dominic Monaghan in this movie too. Oh, right. God, right. Really or any of the other actors. Um, so. So, but and and so I, I I I guess I suspect I'd be the kind of per I'm the I'm the sort of fan that probably just about anything they would have done I would have been dissatisfied with. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't have liked it any better if they'd had Sauron show up in his um, uh, uh, armored form from right. the Lord of the, the Lord of the Ring prologue, and had him standing there with the staff casting spells at Gandalf and have sort of a. a you know, a, a Dungeons and Dragons LARP-style battle. That right. would have been awful, too. Right. So, you know, in fairness, when I think about how how might they have done that confrontation that I that I would be completely satisfied with and say, yeah, that's excellent. Um, I don't think there's probably anything they could have done. And so, so taking a step back and thinking about sort of what you're suggesting, which is what they're trying to do... It's not necessarily have a faithful visual um, execution of exactly wh- how that scene transpired in the books, but rather a visually interesting, you know, and that's certainly one of the criteria is it needs to actually be kind of fun to watch for the fans. So fair enough. Let's admit right. that. But um, but just have a visual a – visual Metaphor almost for for what exactly happens or what we can imagine happen in that confrontation. Gandalf sneaks into Dol Guldur, discovers its Sauron, um, uh and just barely escapes. Eventually, um, what would that look like? And and I think you're right. Like I think something like this uh, uh, this a very, very visual um, illustration of the power of darkness that Sauron wields, which at this point is stronger. Well, it's always stronger than, than Gandalf is. Yes. Um, versus sort of the power of light that Gandalf wields. Like, you're right. I, I actually, in, in sort of, at least um, in, in my head, even if not in my sort of instinctual um, reaction, I actually pr- like kind of like this at least better than the Sauron and Gandalf um, um, sorcery off. Right. You know, instead of them sort of kinetic energy staff wielding, beating each other up. Like, this was a lot more just sort of visceral, like, you know, this was a confrontation of wills, of one of the good guys and one of the much more powerful bad guys. And 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 doing it this way, like, I kind of like, it. I think I, I would, I still, I think what I would have liked is if Sauron had been sort of a figure wielding the dark instead of him being the, the inky smoke monster thing, like, you know, being sort of the vague, a necromancerish shadow type thing, kind of like he was in the first movie, but but still, at the end of the day, it, it is kind of a nice visual representation of how these sorts of confrontations
1: go down in
0: Tolkien. That it really is a struggle of wills. Yes, so,
1: um, yes, and and as to that last point, um, I suspect based on the the very slight reveal of the shadowy, vaguely humanoid figure that we got in film one for the necromancer. Um, I'm perfectly willing to believe that that's actually happening, but uh, but he's dark and in the darkness and therefore not visible. So all we see is this, is you know, just as with Gandalf we see the white light emanating from him so we see the shadow which is I presume emanating from and not in fact identical with the necromancer but the difference of course is that the light that Gandalf is emitting illuminates him whereas the shadow that comes from the necromancer conceals him and actually I find that uh, sort of thematically allegorically morally appropriate really Um, and, and and so, so, so I, I, I do kind of like that. I don't think that we're sub- necessarily supposed to understand that the shadow is the necromancer here any more than that the flaming eyeball really is Sauron uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, but but again, the fact that. Gandalf himself is revealed by the light that we can, you know, that, that that we we can see Gandalf standing at the center of the light is. Um, I get to me symbolically. I think that that works really well, um, but. Uh, uh, oh shoot! I forgot the other thing I wanted to say about that. Never mind. Totally lost my train of thought. I was th- there was the- oh yeah no I, uh, Dave I wanted to pick up on the other point that you made. Um, I thought because uh, um, the business with like the kinetic uh, power of their staffs and in the way that we see you know the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman, not the second one that I was referring to at the beginning of the Return of the King but the Fellowship of the Ring slugfest um, that uh, the way that that was corporealized it, it did end up being really really kind of silly um, but. Think about the way that they took that similar idea, but really transformed it, I think, effectively in The Desolation of Smaug, which is Gandalf's confrontation with Azok. When he sort of hits him with his staff in almost the same gesture that he used against Saruman in that fight, but instead of just, you know, hurling some kinetic force at him, uh, he, he commands him. Right. And that, that yeah. too, is obviously a battle of will. And the battle of wills between Gandalf and Azog is one that Gandalf wins handily, right? So there we see, uh, you know, Gandalf asserting his power and his will. Right. Um, and, and Azog is literally helpless against him when yeah. he does that. Which is
2: actually good, because that gives us the calibration. In
1: exactly.
2: Words, it allows the audience to sort of calibrate, okay, Gandalf can take out Azog easy. <laughs> and then when he goes up against Sauron, then you're like, like whoa, okay, now we're really impressed with Sauron's power because right, we saw what Gandalf could do before,
1: yeah. right. And so, I mean, I thought that that was, I thought that that was really well done, um, and um, and and I agree with you, Trish. I think when you were saying about the, you know, the 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 flaming eye, when the flaming eyeball is revealed, and uh, you know, and Sauron sort of walks out as the pupil, um, and then especially that sort of trippy GIF effect of uh, of you right. know the the the. <laughs> Which people
2: in Colorado will love.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, That passage, you know, precisely the one I mean. Um, Yes. I really like your characterization of that as as basically not like, and now I shall show you as I really am, a flaming eyeball, um, or the pupil of a flaming eyeball, but rather that that's sort of like a vision that Gandalf gets, you know, that that's something that's, that, right. that's sort of revealed to him. Um, and I, th- I think that that works really well. You know, Alden uh, Foster is pointing out that, you know, they do hint that the pupil of the eye was Sauron, that he does sort of take bodily form there. But again, I think that that's... Um, that's him revealing himself to Gandalf. Um, whereas he was almost as a
2: mental, like you said, a vision. It's almost almost like a mental. Yes. Yes. Like Gandalf's getting it telepathically almost.
1: Yes. It is not necessarily obvious to me that, and that uh, if there had been another observer sitting there, that they would have seen exactly what Gandalf saw. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, I also really love the comment that Brian Biggs made a little while back. Um, how he said that that scene with Gandalf uh, before the eye recalled to him the witch king's line, thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. I I think that's a great observation. It it does sound to me a lot like that. Um, So I keep coming back though to Gandalf's motivation for going in because I feel like until I can come up with a theory I'm happy with explaining that, I can't really understand the full sort of thematic force of this idea because if he's going in... uh, Okay, there are three reasons I can think of that Gandalf is going in and tell me if, if, if you think I'm leaving anything out. One is... Purely for investigation reasons, that he he's he, he's determined to find out the truth. So he's going to go at the risk that he's going to get his butt kicked. He's going to go in and discover the truth. The second is that he is uh, uh, arrogant, that he believes he can handle it. So he's going to go in uh, and he's going to put on the boots and he's going to kick some butt. And uh, if Goadriel if he needs Goadriel's help, he's got her for backup. But whatever, he's going in. The third would be self-sacrificial. That he knows he's going to get his butt kicked. Um, he's uh, he's called for help, so he knows that the cavalry is on the way. But nevertheless, he's going to go in knowing that he's very likely to get his butt kicked. And those three mm-hmm. things: this sort of the 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 to reveal the truth, to uh, to destroy the darkness, uh, you know, on his own, or to uh, sacrifice himself in order to compel the darkness to reveal itself. Um, I, I'm. I. I feel like those have very different um, impacts, depending on which of those I, things it is.
2: I've got this. I got this mental image of Galadriel coming in, kicking Sauron's butt, hands on hips, looking up at him in his in his um, thing, going, "You sent Radagast to get me. You told Radagast you know it was a trap, and you didn't wait. And right. Why didn't you wait for us?" <laughs> right.
1: Besides which, you know, in Peter Jackson's world, I'm like five minutes away. Seriously, you couldn't wait right. for that? <laughs> <laughs> How long did you expect me to take to get here from Lothlorien? For crying out, I didn't even have to cross the Misty Mountains. Which you can do in half an hour. So come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Now listen, I, I I know we have a whole year to do this, so I, I really want to be very soft at this. But we are actually uh, past the time allotted for this topic. Drat. Okay. What I
1: know. Drat. So I don't know.
2: I mean, it's our choice. We could shorten up the other ones, or
1: no. Let's, on let's, let's 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 try to push through to the end here. Okay. Um, let's let's make a let's make a
0: one one last. Parting comment on it. Um, I want to acknowledge your point, Corey. This, this, uh, the Gandalf, the Gandalf, insta- uh, the Gandalfs, and um, Radagast stuff leading up to this felt very rushed. It's sort of like, yes, it, 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 he went very quickly from, um, you know, well, I'm going to drop the dwarves off here. Oh, there's uh, there's something on this tree, and I'm getting a vision from Gladrill which it's not clear if that was a memory or an hallucination or a telepathic communication and then i'm going to go check these things and i'm going to go write to Dolcold. it felt the pacing was all off mm-hmm. it really went yes. really really fast Yeah. so i agree i'm hoping that there's just a bunch of stuff that's been cut
1: yes um uh, yeah, I, uh david mosley is pointing out that you were just doing crit fic there and saying that it was rushed yeah so yeah. did timothy fisher yeah 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 and they're <laughs> they're they're totally correct um
0: but, okay, let me let me rephrase it felt rushed yes the can can of worms saying, here. i'm not sure i'm not saying they i'm not claiming anything about the filmmakers it just felt fast to me i just i felt yeah. like
1: it did happen very along. fast those scenes yeah. were clipped and they were not they were not very clearly connected to each other um it yeah. it, it, it 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 was jarring i felt jarred by that too yes um and and i especially and, and again to me the, the the consequence of that is exactly the in the uncertainty that i find myself still sitting in which is because the build up to that was so brief i find myself mm-hmm. not really understanding the force of it i don't know how to interpret it now what I am willing to say, especially based on the visual imagery that we get in the final confrontation, is that we're not supposed to see this as an act simply of stupidity on Gandalf's part, nor self-sacrifice in the sense of, I know I'm going to die and I'm just going to give myself up for, 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 for some reason, but rather Gandalf being willing to stand against darkness. He knows it's a trap. Um, And yet he goes anyway, because it's what he needs to do. It needs to happen. He needs to uncover the darkness, because uncovering is what he does. He goes around Dol Guldur, you know, uh, uh, breaking the spell of concealment that has been placed upon it. Um, That's what he... um, that 's what he is is I, that that 's the whole focus of what he 's doing, so i 'm willing to take that as the indicator of sort of how we 're to understand this that that what Gandalf is doing is revealing the darkness and that he is sort of forcing it to come out into the open uh, and to show itself, which is a play on what happens in the book that is the, the actual plot that happens in the in in the stories of Gandalf discovering, you know, uncovering the fact that the necromancer really is Sauron. Um, but uh, but it, it kind of goes a little further than that, because it's not just an investigative move on Gandalf's part. I, I presume, based on the very brief descriptions we get of this uh, at various points in Tolkien's work, that Gandalf was never discovered, that, that, that Sauron was never the wiser, that Gandalf was there. Right. Um, uh, but of course, I like that, what Scott, that, says.
2: Scott says. Scott says, reveal yourself. Don't make me
1: sing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, and, and, and well, I'm the, thinking
2: somewhere between the two, you know, yeah. the, the, of the three choices you gave. I'm thinking between the second and third. I, I, I hate to attribute arrogance to Gandalf. I just, right. you know, I just can't do it. But I do think maybe he was taking a calculated risk. Yes. I think he was gambling that whatever power was at Dal Guldur was something that he could uh, contend with. So that he knew going knowing, knowing it was a trap, but that he felt up to the task, right? And that there was a risk that maybe a small risk that maybe you know,
1: right? There or was, at least if if he was going to be overwhelmed, he need he had to risk that anyway because he needed because right. Right. even even knowing that Goadriel's coming, um, right? Basically, either he is able to defeat or drive off the darkness himself, or he will force the darkness to reveal itself and thus better equip Goadriel to handle it when she comes up. Um,
0: I'm holding out for uh, we'll we'll res- we'll get a new op- an additional option once we get more material. <laughs> <So I'm hoping laughs> yes.
1: To- well, though, to me, this fits in with uh, with other themes that we see and other things that we're about to segue to talk about, um, you know, uh, Toriel is all about confronting the darkness and standing up to it, um, and uh, going to find it at its source and revealing it. Um, and Thorin also is not content to cower on the, the the slopes of the mountain and let Bilbo go in and do his separate investigation. Nicely done. So nicely done,
0: Professor. Thank you, thank
1: you very much. So <laughs> I would, I would, I would therefore say that this kind of uh, you know revelation, both. Uh, not just standing against the darkness, but this proactive standing against the darkness this seeking out in order to reveal and defy the darkness um, does in my mind count as a much larger theme of this of this story. Now briefly because I, we, I do, we really do want to get to other things um, but but I but we can't go off without comparing it back to the book at all I would say that theme, is not in the Hobbit. That that's not something that the Hobbit, as a book, is really, I think, concerned about. Um, we don't get that kind of. We really don't get much of that kind of light versus darkness stuff going on in the Hobbit. I mean, there is evil, and there's it, it's a very it's very interested in good and evil and in moral choices and things like that. Especially at the end, um, it's less interested in um, in. Sort of light and darkness in that way, and 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 standing against the darkness. I, I don't see that in the Hobbit book. I, I do see that in the Lord of the Rings a good deal more. Hmm. But it's interesting. I think the dynamics are different, and it's, this is something you know. We can come back and mull this over. We're going to be coming back to these ideas uh, and these themes as we go through season three and think through some of this stuff in more detail. So it's okay if we don't resolve each of these themes today, but
2: let me make one. uh, Just what you made me think of when you were just talking about that is I, I, I think it's important for us to remember that the Hobbit by and large is a pre on fairy stories story. It's a pre on fairy stories, fairy story, right? Meaning, you know, he had not really formed all of his, final conclusions about... Well, he actually didn't really finish formulating those until the 50s, did he? Because the the essay really got uh, changed, even from the talk. So, this was, you know, The Hobbit was written back in the days when he was still reading you know... um, the Goblin, you know, Princess and the Goblin, and that kind of stuff, and uh, so that Smaug really is the big bad in the story. I mean, that's kind of almost like the traditional fairy story villain, right? Yes, yes. And necromancer is sort of like a side thing. So, yeah. So when he wrote the Hobbit itself, it, that just wasn't really a theme he was really focused that much on, right? right. Versus Lord of the Rings was a different thing,
1: right? Right. Um, and, I, and 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 I'm, I'm 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 saying light versus darkness rather than good versus evil because good versus evil begins to to Become uh, to to sort of sound very trite and overgeneralized uh, from the beginning. You know the light standing, you know the the light standing against the shadow is something that does come up quite a bit uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, again, I think the dynamics are somewhat different, um, but uh, um, but anyway, certainly this is something. Uh, but again, here here we get into the project that um, that peter jackson and company are doing um which is that you know it's not even it's it's not fair just to compare even the thematic interests of the film against only the thematic interests of the book because it is not only the published hobbit of course that they're working with um and uh so anyway we can we can we can kind of uh we can kind of come back uh and and as i say talk about this more uh as we move forward but um uh, but, but, uh, anyhow, um, let's, um, let's, let's move from this to our next topic. Our next topic was Toriel and, um, uh, and, and in particular, the love triangle. I want to think about that a little bit more. This is, I think more than anything, the single most off-putting for Tolkien, uh, uh purists and lovers, um, the single most off-putting, uh, theme of, <clears throat> uh, of the, of the film, um so I want to I want to think about that a little bit. Um what do we see going on in the film? What are the dynamics of this story as it's told in the film? Um and I think first we you know we have to start with the conversation that Toriel and Kiwi have while he's in uh, uh his comparatively luxurious prison. Um and what do we see there? What do we, and Dave, I know that you really like that scene. What is it that you tell me? What you think is most important about that scene, and and how we're supposed to be kind of taking it?
0: Um, it's it's an interesting question. You know, actually, I have an anecdote um, uh, related to this. I was I was uh, rewatching this scene the other day since. Uh, Teresa has a uh, screener of this. I am able to, to watch it on occasion, um, and uh, I thought I had caught um, the the screenwriters in a uh, trap because I I wasn't sure if the uh, the the Sylvan Elves, the I believe Nandor is the correct yes. term, yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if they count as Eldar or not, and they had Tariel <laughs> talking about, oh, the Eldar left Starlight, and it's like or Love All Light, and I'm like, hmm, I think I caught them in a mistake that I can rail on them for. But no, in fact, the, Sil- the Sylvan Elves do in fact count as Eldar. As Eldar, yes. Which actually brings up a really interesting question to me. Who, like, I'm just sort of amusing out loud, and we shouldn't get into this, but uh, who actually doesn't count as the as the Eldar, other than Eol? He seems to be, like, the only person that I can <laughs> like, name and say, like, this guy for sure not the Eldar.
1: The um, Avari, I think. Yeah. Um, but we don't
0: really ever... I guess I,
2: I thought all never... Eldar... Are, so Eldar is not synonymous with human, then. I mean, in other words, like... you With, know, you with use human, yeah. To, to
1: oh, oh right. Humans. Is it parallel I to it?
2: Thought, I, yeah, no, Eldar... Yeah. Eldar... I thought the Eldar were the first children of Lúvatar, so that would be any elf, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> there is... There is a distinction that's introduced that, like, basically only the three peoples that set out on the journey are called the Eldar. Um... Uh, yeah, even if you walked five feet, you you get to count <laughs> Right, right, and no, and this is true. I was actually, Dave. I was thinking because I, I I remembered <laughs> you go saying and, that.
0: I gotta go back and read the beginning of the Lane again. Right, all
1: right. I, I was, I was, I was recalling, Dave. You're you're making this comment or asking this question before, and when we were reading unfinished tales, um, I think it was Syros, uh, who is one of the Nandor, um, in the Turin story. Um oh. uh he is I, right. th- I think he was referred to as one of the eldar at one point so i was i was i was i can't put my finger on it right now the exact passage but as I, I and i can't quote it off the top of my head but i remember reading the Turin story and and thinking of you dave and thinking oh wait wait here it is nandor as eldar there it was um uh so uh so yeah 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 um aha so now no so um, she does count. She is officially Eldar. So, all right, fine. Yeah. So, anyway, but...
0: I, well, I'm I, relieved I
2: to know that the scriptwriters didn't get caught on such a simple thing.
0: Yes, thank God. <laughs> uh, then, we would, then we would have just gotten sidetracked <laughs> with complaining about that the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. So I, I don't know if I can put my finger on exactly what it is I liked about the scene. Maybe, maybe just because I found it to be a welcome respite in the, um, the, 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 the sort of... Uh, um, the constant barrage of action scenes. But, right, right. Um, but I think it also, it felt it felt authentic. It felt very, you know, apart from my suspicion that they screwed up the elves, um, uh, it felt Tolkien-esque in a sense. It was a little more, it's was, it was not the kind of dialogue he would write, um, but, but it still felt Tolkien-esque. It seemed like the kinds of things characters might discuss. Um, it's something that, that, it's a, it was a place where they, they innovated, where they changed, they, they added their own material, went in a new direction, um, that, uh, that 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 I feel like didn't abuse the canon too badly, and um, it, just all in all, I you know going in we were we were we were the, the big question mark was so what are they going to do with Toriel and particularly what are they going to do with the love triangle, and um, and and like you said, uh, Corey at uh, Mythmoot, we were expecting the worst—that it was going to be some kind of um, Taryel and Legolas thingamabobber. a uh, right. you know, some kind of forbidden uh, love type storyline—and um, and it wasn't. Uh, and that that the, the little bit that they gave of that was irritating, but they didn't go too far down that road. And apart from the strange, crass comment that that uh, that Keeley makes, which is which is a little. Uh, out of place in a Tolkien work, but whatever. We can overlook it. About his pants, um, you mean?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: That was a little crass. Yes,
2: uh, that was a little jarring. <laughs> you know,
0: that, I felt like this scene was subtle. It wasn't overtly romantic, really, in any sense. It was. um It. It really like, basically, it, it was a nice way to use tariel to to show her as being kind of the the rebel elf who, who's. Who understands her duty and is, and is going to execute it and yet at the same time can can deign to condescend and have a conversation in in both the physical and metaphorical senses condescend to have a conversation with the prisoner dwarf um, right and it it was it was just a really nice moment of character development that i think was handled very well and it wasn't handled clumsily and it and it It defeated my expectations, which were, you know, I'll admit I expected it to be handled poorly and to be really irritating and dumb. And it wasn't. And for me, I think it really set up the potential to do some really interesting things in the third film when we get to the uh, siege of the Lonely Mountains.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. Um, you know, Dave, I want to pick up on what yeah, you said about that. that seeming that seeming like a very kind of Tolkien esque scene. I agree. The way that that seemed the, the the way that that scene gave me that impression was it is it is a scene more than any other moment in the film. I thought. Um, well, okay, that's not quite true, but uh, but up there with any of the other moments in the film, it is. It was a mm-hmm. scene that engaged with the world of Middle Earth. It was one of the things that really. It was a Both her description of the elvish point of view and how elves look at the world and her interest in in hearing Kiwi describe the things that he has seen as he has traveled around the world, the kind of, the way in which both of those characters are themselves engaged with the wonders of that world, and sharing that with each other, and also, you know, getting us engaged and inviting us to imagine, not only to imagine parts of this marvelous world, but also um, the way that those things appear to a dwarf and to an elf, that struck me as a very Tolkien kind of thing. Or rather, if though, though I agree, not the way Tolkien would have written that kind of dialogue had he described such a scene, but nevertheless, the effect that that scene had on me as a viewer was similar to the kind of effect that that Tolkien's works, I think, often have in the way in which I was engaged with the world, both like the geography of the world and with the uh, and with the, the sort of the outlook on the world of the different people in it. Um. Uh, so that I think. Um, That, I thought, was very effective. Um, uh, Brian uh, Fattarini is saying, uh, the unexpected cross-cultural discovery of common values definitely seemed to be pointing pretty hard to the larger history of Mm Middle-earth. Yeah, I totally Mm -hmm. agree uh, with that. Um, And... uh, um, and I, I also I like the you know the specific observation that Scott Farmer makes. he says, I thought it was quite interesting that to a dwarf starlight seemed a cold light, you know and again thinking that uh, you know from people who spend their time underground um, you know that they would not really appreciate it. so the fact that you know here is an elf trying to say, you know yeah I, I recognize that you don 't understand the stars that you don 't really think about the stars uh, let me let me share with you what it 's like to 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 be out with the star and yet. Um, the the way in which that was handled where, of course, one of the main things that Toriel is interested in is just to hear his stories of... The world, because she's not seen that much of the world, in fact. She has lived for goodness knows how long here in the Elven King's halls and in the Elven King's realm. Uh, You know, this woman might not have stepped foot outside of Mirkwood in a thousand years. Um, And even the fact that she's one of the Nandor, that she's one of the Sylvan Elves, um, she is much less... I mean... Her people. I, I I don't know when exactly Toriel was supposed to have been born, um, but uh, but her people anyway have have quite likely been living in Mirkwood ever since the you know the Eldar passed west over this way. You know she she is likely one of the one, you know descended from the people who did not cross and who did not ever cross the Misty Mountains. Um, And so, therefore, she's never seen, like, her people have never been, like, they just were in the previous movie on the other side of the Misty Mountains um, in the Shire. And not only Toriel herself, but her people have never been there. You know, uh, uh, Keeley, for all the fact that he's, you know, hundreds of years younger than Toriel, has seen way more of the world than Toriel has. Um, So... So anyway, it's uh, th- th- that element. Both how she had, you know, his own experience of the world is limited because he doesn't look at the, you know, he 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 looks at the world from this dwarvish point of view, and doesn't, uh, you know, can't appreciate, you know, the relationship with the stars that the Eldar have. Um, so too, she doesn't have any kind of insight into the into the the world as a whole. She's she's lived this very parochial life. Um, so anyway, I thought that that was that was a really fascinating. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Dime is reminding me that Legolas mentions to Aragorn that Eric, how Aragorn has seen so much uh, more of the world than he even though Legolas in other places uh, lumps Aragorn in with the rest of the children that he's been traveling with uh, so. Noam
2: brings up a issue that I, I have it, there seems to be an assumption that Tariel is 600 years old I don't know that that's necessarily true although maybe Boyance has said that I don't know the only line I heard was just Legolas saying to her something about how Thranduil for 600 years has had her under his wing. To me, that didn't necessarily mean she was 600 years old. It meant she's been in, tower in, uh, you know, like a ward, if you will, of the king for 600 years. So I think she could be older, but I, I don't think there's a really a definite answer to that question.
1: No, I don't, Do you I, guys don't, know? I don't think so. It would be interesting. If she were 600 years old, that would... That would actually, in a sense, put her kind of in a parallel situation with Keeley. With Keeley, b- yeah. Because it means that she would be quite young compared to most of the other elves. Um, So she and Kiwi would be like the, you know, the two bright eyed, young, inexperienced uh, members of their groups, essentially. Which, you
2: know, could actually turn into something in the third movie. Yes. Those two becoming a force, you know, uh, to try to mediate or whatever in the third movie, like the new generation with its new way of thinking and can't we all get along and blah, blah, blah. So that, that could be an interesting thing.
1: Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, Harold says Harold Johnson says uh, that he liked the continual reference to Kiwi's youth. You know, first uh, in, in in the first film, he gets lambasted for joking about orcs. Here, he's the cocky young guy willing to make a dirty joke to the pretty elf at the same time that he's holding on to a token given by his mom. Um, that that all seems very. Deliberate and yeah, I, I like that, and not just for the kind of Easter egg reference to the only female dwarf who ever gets named uh, by Tolkien, uh, which was Kiwi's mom, um, but uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I too I too like that, um, and so so you know one thing that we get here in you know starting off in that scene with Toriel in Kiwi is the meeting of two worlds and that we as viewers are invited to to, to see that, to sort of partake uh, in that. Um uh but um
2: Michael Lucero said he just had a horrible vision of Keeley asking Tariel to toss him in the Battle of Five <laughs> <laughs> oh, Please, no I,
1: No, I, I I hope not. <laughs> um but uh <laughs> anyway, um uh Anyhow, um, the
2: well, I have a little bit. Of, you want me to? You want sure, me to sure, go more? ahead. I'll try to keep it short. Um, several, many, actually, many things about this scene, and I, I unlike Dave, I mean, I envy Dave the ability to go back and actually, you know, parse out this one scene. First of all, the stone marketer and me. When I saw the stone, I'm like, "Oh, merchandising! that stone to be on the market," <laughs> you know. um, um but, guaranteed, um, guaranteed, absolutely, but um. I like, from Tauriel's point of view, I liked it because we got more than just Tauriel Warrior Princess. If you think about every other scene she's in, it's like, you know, she's kicking butt and taking names. And now we got to see her as more than just that. But then also as the voice, and I think you've said this before, Corey, as the voice of the elves, we got some more depth and color into what it's like to be an elf, what their worldview is like. And I think that was nicely juxtapositions, as you said, to Keeley, both dwarf elf and also uh, world traveler versus non-world traveler. I mean, I think that whole thing was really interesting. Um, Somebody said, David, I think, said earlier, or somebody mentioned, you know, could this be some kind of a parallel to the uh, Gimli-Legolas relationship? Um, and I, that had crossed my mind. You know, this is kind of setting that up as, yes, it is possible for a dwarf and an elf to, you know, to bond. Um, I'm not crazy about where they took it, you know, into the lake land, lake, lake land, lake town yeah. holding hands thing. You know, I almost think G- G- Keely, after she saved his life, what, three times, four times, five times? There's kind of like the Middle Earth version of transference going on here. And you can see how he'd fall in love with, with anybody who would be saving his life that many times. But I'm not crazy about that direction. But I do think, you know, we have here maybe a beginning of explaining how it is possible for, you know, an elf and a dwarf to really form a bond. Um, I'm hoping that they really don't take the romance piece of it any further than they've already done.
1: Well, I don't know how much opportunity they're going to have to do that. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- moving ahead to that part, can I just say in passing a very brief uh, uh, sort of feminist question uh, issue uh, about Toriel, something that I think has been understressed. Se- severe. Lots of people have been uh, s- saying that it's a shame that the you know they added a female character and then you know had to put her in a in a romance plot. Um, I think that this is that that that's unfair in two ways. One way, um, the fact that they chose to have a love story at all um, seems. Uh, like a kind of a predictable choice. Um, And if they were going to have a love story... Who else was a candidate? Yeah, you know, I because mean, they say they, add, oh, they they added a female character and then just slapped her into a love story. They didn't just slap her into a love story. The character of Toriel does a great deal more than just get involved in a love story. She's obviously not just there to be a love interest. So somebody to care. I mean, the, the way that she is the spokesperson again. You know, she is the opposite pole of Thranduil. In that, in that, that, that's a really strong role that she plays, especially in that speech that she has with Legolas. How she is the one who draws Legolas out to basically, you know, choose not to ally himself ideologically with his father, but instead uh, to move with her to actually, you know... It is their fight and to, to stand against evil and go, go along with the Gandalf theme there. Um, so I, I thought that her role by far was a great deal more than just as a love interest. So the idea that they've taken in, they've taken a female character and then trivialized her by merely slapping her in as a love interest, I think, is a misreading of the film uh, and a trivializing of what of what of what she does. But the second no, it's crit fic. Yeah, exactly, and this and well, that that part of it goes without saying. But the second thing that I would say is, I think that the the, you know people who are interested you know in a feminist critique of this are paying far too little attention to what I think uh, Peter Jackson and company deserve a lot of props for, and that is the extent to which they don't sexualize Toriel's character they could have easily done that she could have shown a lot more cleavage for instance than she does i know That's that sounds true. crass but i mean seriously if had had, that had their goal been to you know yeah. to 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 you know woo sixteen year old boys they could have put her in like a clinging leather cat suit, but they didn't her clothes are very not revealing i mean she 's beautiful you're you're conscious of the fact that she 's very attractive, but she is if anything desexualized i think in her representation that would have been offensive had they put in a female character only to uh to to you know make her look like a uh, uh, you know a, a a Marvel comic villainess or something, um, then that would have been objectionable. But here, I think yeah. I, I so anyway. I, I I think that uh, that this is this is one of the things that I, Sorry, so I just wanted to rant for a second at uh, two ways in which I think that the uh, that that kind of feminist critique of Torrio I think it, uh, is 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 kind of missing the boat in a couple important ways.
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's why it's that's why it really strikes me as critic because I don't like there's nothing. None of those critiques is true. Right. As far as we've seen. Right. Um, they're they're criticizing what they imagine. Um, they, they, they basically are, are are attributing intentions to yes. the to the filmmakers that that there is no evidence that any of these things is true. Right. Like so far. That's why I like this scene so much. None of those things that any but the worst possible things anyone imagined have happened yet. I, as far as we can tell, she's not in a love story. Right. right. Really, honestly, all we have is we have like a, just like the most the, the tiniest of conversations with Thingle. Thingol, which <gasps> there was no indication in there whatsoever that she had any interest in Legolas. It was right. sounded like a hypothetical. All we've seen is Legolas, you know, kind of glowering, kind of looking at her, talking at the the dwarves, and then following her to Lake Town. And then we have um, uh, Keely kind of pining away after her after she's magically healed him. Uh, as far so far, there seems to be no evidence of an actual full-blown romance. Right. Um, so, I, I don't even know what people are criticizing. <laughs> you know yeah,
1: I mean, I mean and, and it's true that we, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, she has some kind of feelings for Kiwi, um, as she seems to be upset when the, you know, when the, when the captured orc says that Kiwi has been poisoned and is going to die, and that certainly does seem to inform um, why she runs off to Lake Town. But. Um, but, but Dave, I think that your point is really well taken. People um, are, have been really quick to, 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 I mean, basically hearing people talk about the elf dwarf romance, you'd think they got married in the movie or something, you know? Yeah. Um, and that didn't happen. All that happened was like the fact that the two of them are clearly, clearly like each other. Uh, and they, you know, and they, they very briefly hold hands at the end Um and Kiwi is clearly infatuated and she's clearly interested, but no, no lines have been crossed of any kind yet. No. What we see is the fact that two people, that a dwarf and an elf are capable of liking each other, even finding each other attractive, being interested in each other um, and being willing to, to to transgress boundaries in order to help each other and even to be together. That's nothing radical has happened yet. Nothing more radical than that has occurred. Um, You know, we, we don't have, uh, we've, you know, I mean, I was comparing, I was comparing it to Luthien and Barron. Well, it, it is, but so is, but, but is it more radical? even than Legolas and Gimli's relationship? I mean, goodness. Well, that's what I
2: mean. That's that's what I was talking about in terms of that this almost sets that up. Yeah. Again, back to my thing about this being before Lord of the Rings, this sort of sets up the thing of there can be this bond between a dwarf and an elf. And so then when we see it with Gimli and Legolas later in the later story, it's not so surprising that it happens. You know what I mean? I mean, I just, that's kind of, from a movie-making standpoint, I could see this serving, this being one of the purposes that this relationship serves.
1: Yeah. And I do
2: think it's going to, I do think it's, I do think that the bond that they formed and I don't call it, I don't think it's a relationship. I mean, it's a love relationship, perhaps in the sense of the love of friends and that there's a connection. I do think it's going to, I do think something's going to come up that around this in the third movie in terms of their bond making some impact. Yes. um, In during the siege maybe or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and and I mean, I I I don't want to make it sound like not, I'm trying to totally. Of is,
0: all of that is like it's still very. As long as they stay, if if they stay sort of in the general vein that they're going in, I I suppose. I suppose that there probably is very little chance that we'll get get we'll make it through to the end of the film without some kind of like on screen kiss or something like that. But 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 you know, I I think I could even tolerate that if if they kind of stay in the general vein that they're in, like it's not clear what is the nature of her interest in him beyond, beyond, curio- beyond curiosity about this, you know, of, obviously she picked him out of all the dwarves because he is the most attractive, but nonetheless, it's fairly clear that, that, that her feelings toward him are bound up in her, her more general character, which is a person who's interested and cares about the outside world. she, Yes, she's concerned about him individually when the orc makes that comment, but she's also concerned about the outside world, Yes, given the comments that she's made about Legolas. She cares about, you know, not just staying within the borders and defending her realm, but like going out and, and, and getting involved. Um, she's non-isolationist. Um, she, so, so, like, it, it, I, I don't think, I think that the, the, there's actually minimal evidence for really, really overt, strong romantic feelings on her part toward, toward him. Like, I, none of it strikes me as, is, um, it, it's very, you know what it feels like to me? It feels like, um, Aragorn and Eowyn. Um, Eowyn. In fact, I would I would go so far as to say the Aragorn-Eowyn stuff in the Two Towers irritates me far more than this.
1: Oh, goodness, yes. Holy cow, yes. <laughs> yes.
2: But see, this is one of the things, this is one of the reasons why that thing at the end, bot, when he's like, could she love me, kind of thing at the end bugs me, is that I think it does take away from Yes, it, it, I agree with that. It makes something so trite that it's actually something really deep, you know, because I do agree with you guys. It's the bond between dwarf and elf. It's what you were just describing, Dave, about about Tauriel's, you know, larger view of things. And it's, I mean, there's a lot going on here. And I just felt like that little bit at the end where he's like, can she love me? You know, just like took it down. Yeah, that it was just, s-
0: stupid. Yeah,
2: so that that bugged me from that standpoint. Not from, like, that there's, like, this love thing going on. But it just, like, it demeaned everything that had gone before, almost. It
0: That's did.
1: probably overstating and, it, but... You no, know, I, I, I don't think so. And and I, I think that that was a bad line. Um, yeah. It was a failure in dialogue because it... <clears throat> it was one step too far in making... Like, he didn't have to say that. You know, as if we wouldn't have gotten it... Without that you know I feel right. like that 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 was a place where they were just um trying to you know make it sort of the one step more um more explicit and more um uh, uh more more overt which really did kind of wreck things um yeah. and uh um so i yeah i i I do think it would have been better because it does work in a more kind of mythic sense if you um, just leave it. That, and I, I say mythic because it has the implications, you know, the connections of being able to um, uh, to serve as the, that, that, that you know, basically the way that their, their romantic relationship, and I'm not trying to deny that they were romantically attracted to each other. They obviously were. Um, but the way in which that serves as this almost kind of mythic symbol of these other things the way you know trish as you were saying the way that it kind of fits together with all of these larger uh, ideas um and becomes a kind of symbol for that um and then that comment kind of brings it back down to right. the to sort of the crass and literal level but right. yeah yeah um
2: Okay, ding ding ding. Ding
1: ding ding. Yeah, we we were long past <laughs> needing to move on about this. But um, but again, thinking of themes now. What what is the what is the the core idea? I think that these ideas, this these sort of these willingness the the willingness to cross boundaries, the tendency towards um, sort of xenophobia that uh, that the elves in particular have, you know, with Thranduil as the chief representative of the one who primarily cares about his own people and his own stuff. Um uh, the willingness to—that is true.
2: You do get that. Actually, that, that she does actually throw his xenophobia in a, even more of a contrast. Yes, yes, Than you would get without her. For and
1: sure. and yeah. the dwarves too. You know, I mean, uh, thinking right. about the like the conversation between between Dwalin and Thorin about Bard. You know that they, they're obviously suspecting him just because he's human, and they don't trust him because he's I not expect- a dwarf. Um, and, uh, and, and so, and, and, and obviously then you've got, you know, Thorne and his elf issues. Um, so th- th- there is a way in which a lot of the characters in this story are very happily prejudiced. That is, they're, they're, they're quite cheerful and unapologetic in their own racial prejudices. Um, and... Toriel, you know, Toriel and Kiwi become line crossers there, and that is something, I mean, again, that I do link, and I have been linking ever since I saw the film, with a theme at the end of the, of The Hobbit, even the published Hobbit book. The battle of three armies that almost happens, and the battle of five armies that does happen um is a lot about those lines i mean when we've got the three camp you know when we've got the elves and the humans and the dwarves facing off against each other in front of the lonely mountain one of the big questions is are we is anybody going to cross those lines is anybody willing right. um to recognize that you are not necessarily the enemy i should not be looking at you with suspicion and possibly loathing um just because of what you are um, are we going to all of us, humans, elves, and dwarves, make make again the larger community that used to exist back in the old days before the dragon came, or are in fact we going to follow the dragon's lead and continue to look out for number one, um, either personally or racially? Um, so, in that way, I do think, and, and especially, I'm I'm thinking in terms of. Um, I'm thinking in terms of the uh, setup for the Battle of Five Armies uh, and for the standoff at the Lonely Mountain that I think this is obviously Mm going to become a really prominent theme um, Mm -hmm. in the films. So anyway, okay.
2: speaking of what there's a segue for you. There we go. Speaking of, the mount-
1: speaking of the Lonely Mountain. Speaking of the Lonely Mountain, Thorin. So and, and and okay, I'll try to be briefer about that. Okay, no, that's going to fail. But anyway, uh, Thorin, Thorin and the Lonely Mountain. So Thorin and the Return of the King theme. Um, this is something which is, of course, one of those elements which has been made much more consistent from the beginning of the story in the film than was so in the book. Um, by the time we get to chapter ten the return of the, the king theme is a very prominent one in the book. And we have, you know, the king returning to his destined uh, to, to reclaim his land and the restoration of the countryside to its former peace and prosperity. Um, as soon as we get to chapter 10 in Lake Town and we start singing songs of the old days and Thorin stands up and says, I am Thorin, son of thrain son of Thror, king under the mountain, I return. Um, we're there in um, in in the book. We are not there in Chapter 1. That's not what they're talking about. Um, I, I, I mean, it's it comes up like they want to reclaim, but it's they're mostly focused on their treasure in Chapter 1. The issue of Thorin as a king and the king returning, uh, and certainly any sense that there is like a destiny or prophecy that the king will return is not there in Chapter 1 of The Published Hobbit. So one of the things, obviously that the film is has that the films have done is to take that concept of Thorin primarily not just as a, a a a very important dwarf who is the leader of these dwarves who are trying to reclaim the treasure but of Thorin as king in exile who is thinking like a king in exile and who wants to reclaim his kingdom and who wants to Uh, who wants to do that? That's yeah. And Yana says, I doubt, uh, Tolkien had even thought of that when he wrote chapter one. He certainly hadn't. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he hadn't. You can see it because when he does, by the time we get to the chapter 10 material, uh, in his drafts, we can see him, uh, you know, sort of thinking about, um, thinking about, you know, very different ideas. A lot of that stuff was stuff that, that occurred to him as he was drafting, at, at least as, as the evidence of the, of the surviving drafts seem to suggest. But, um, but anyway, so this is something that the film has raised to more prominence, not out of nowhere, but by projecting it back to the beginning, um, and here following the model of The Quest of Erebor, um, where we see Thorin acting and talking like a king also from the beginning. Um, and Gandalf even kind of taking him to task for that, um, saying, you know, you're thinking of, you know, armies and alliances and things like that. You don't have armies, you don't have alliances. Um, instead, Gandalf suggests, you know, you should go as a small group on this separate quest instead of thinking in terms of trying to rally armies. Um, the film kind of compromises between those things by having Thorin attempt to ra- to rally armies and fail to rally armies, uh, and so that's why you know when he comes to meet them at Bilbo's house at the beginning, he tells them that the rest of the dwarves won't come, and uh, that he that 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 his armies are unavailable. Um, anyway, I uh, I think. So so anyway so the mere fact of of the prominence of this idea of Thorin returning to the mountain and reestablishing the kingdom is a really important theme it's it's something that emerges in the book as we move along and i you know the parallel i think of the parallels that some people have pointed to either in praise or blame uh between Thorin as return of the king and Aragorn as return of the king i th- i think our our it, it it makes perfect sense i mean it's, oh my gosh i mean it's,
2: it's i mean it's it's like the bill bill uh Poppet is like lord of the rings in, in 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 miniature i mean even in the book more so than the movie you you even start out with Thorne being kind of a doddering old man at the beginning you know like you have strider definitely right. not very kingly in the beginning you know and he becomes kingly as the story goes on i mean there's so many parallels the the, the journey you know the eastward journey i mean and, yes and, all of it's, you know, getting caught in the mountains. I mean, there's just little details all the way along the line. Gandalf leaving, you know, under right. different circumstances, granted. <laughs> right. but, um, right. You know, there's so much. And I told you, as I said to Corey before we started, that I just am kind of I, – I scratch my head that there are some people that actually um, criticize the Hobbit movie for being like Lord of the Rings in this regard. Because my response is, well, yeah.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> I yeah. mean, the books are <laughs> –
1: Right, right.
2: That's, that's something they got right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is. It is something that they got right. And basically, Remember, I feel like... I like it. Huh? I, I
0: actually... Uh, in terms of on-screen stories being told, I like this one better. Uh, Thorin's a lot less mopey than film Aragorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true.
2: He's a lot I, more sure of his, king, his kingliness, isn't he?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right I to mean if I can... If I can just take one moment to to, you know, indulge in a Lord of the Rings uh, uh, complaint. I, I I hated the I hated the Aragorn's the oh, human beings are bad people and my forefathers are bad guys, so I really shouldn't just be king. I'm just gonna be a ranger in the wild and kinda do my thing. It's like, oh come on, you destroyed him and then and then and I really don't like Elrond. This like snobby El- high elf Elrond. Right. I don't know. I just I found those in characters the to be Thin, thin facades, uh, mm-hmm. really thin, crappy represent, you know, just like like there's so much depth to both those characters in the books and they just threw it all out and just did these really thin-shell stereotype cliché characters. And instead what we have here, which I think is much more effective, is a really, really nice story where Thorne yeah. is, is deep and conflicted. Not cliché conflicted like the Aragorn in the films, like, oh, I don't I really want to do it, but Thorne is like legitimate, like he wants to be king. He wants to reclaim his homeland, and he, but the reason that he's dead, the reason he's conflicted is he has all these competing desires. He's right. not sure if he's sort of the ruthless king who's willing to sacrifice his, his soldiers to get it done, or is he the, the loyal friend who's going to run down and save Bilbo from the dragon?
2: Did you like Elrond better in The Hobbit?
0: Uh, he wasn't on screen enough. To, to be <laughs> sure, but he seemed like a happier guy in general. He did. So I was, I was yes. good
1: with that, much less cranky. You know, he was like,
0: "Hey, yeah,
1: he was good times, Elrond." <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, I I, 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 do agree about the the story of Thorin, and I think that the way that you know conflicts in his character come in um, do make much more sense and and show him struggling um you're right the aragorn in the movie sort of talks about human weakness and he's all worried that he's going to screw up but we never actually see him screwing up or anything you know it, it seems like he's just moping about it um whereas
0: no, films... in fact we see aragorn in the book screwing up more than aragorn in the movie you're <laughs> right right true, yeah, he has that he has that moment he has that moment um uh, uh, when the fellowship's breaking, where he says, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, all, all of my decisions up. go wrong. I right. can't yeah. do... I can couldn't possibly make a good decision at this point if my
1: life depends on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I... Whereas with Thorin, we see the actual sort of struggles and uh, uh, and challenges in front of him, you know, is he going to be, you know, we have, as I was suggesting after uh, an unexpected journey, the, the way that Azog serves as a foil for him, you know, the, um, the you know, crazy dismembered guy dedicating his life to vengeance. Like, Thorne, are you going to, let yourself be a crazy dismembered guy, dedicating your life to vengeance. Is that what you're really about? Um, you know that combined with a conversation with Balin and Bag End, where Balin's like, you know, you don't, you don't have to do this. You've built a good life for us. If your concern is just providing for your people, you know, you've done that. Let's just move forward. It's it's possible. We could just move forward with what we have. Um, so, um, I, uh, I I I I I think that that's. Um, that that's really interesting the way that that's built up. And then the way that the, the dragon sickness stuff gets kind of worked into that through the second film, I think becomes really interesting. And we'll, we'll focus on those things a little bit in more detail. Uh, you know, as we go on to talk about Thorin more throughout season three, um, to me, the biggest place where this became an issue in the desolation of Smaug was in Thorin's invasion of the mountain and confrontation with Smaug. Um, and there, um, you know, again, obviously this is one of the things that lots of Tolkien fans have, you know, sort of pointed to as a place where, you know, the film now becomes totally irrelevant to the book. Um, uh, but it's very interesting because, again, what we see Thorin doing is acting like a king instead of, like, comic relief, which is what the dwarves act like through a lot of the time in the book. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and I, you know, it is really hard to see if you think of the the way that I have come to, you know, in my own head, think about the Hobbit films is... Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, I, in, in trying to answer the question or address the question, um, I've begun to think that this question in its very terms is is a, is a sort of a misleading question when people want to ask, how true to the books are the Hobbit films? And I, I, as I said, I, I think that that's actually in, in its very terms a kind of misleading question. How I view the Hobbit films, the Hobbit films are a thought experiment based upon the books. Um, because the thought experiment is, what would the Hobbit story look like? What would you have to do to the Hobbit story to bring it into line with the overall story, as Tolkien later on came to be? Like, basically, in 1960, Tolkien sat down to revise The Hobbit. He only got a little bit of a wa- of, of a ways into it, and it was pretty dreadful. Um, and the reason the 1960 Hobbit, I think, is pretty dreadful, is that he doesn't actually change much. He just goes back and he keeps the story very similar, adds some some details, like he he he, uh, in chapter two with the the chapter with the trolls, he's concerned about geography. You know, now of course by the time it's come to nineteen sixty, he's written the Lord of the Rings. He now has the geography between the Shire and Rivendell pretty well mapped out through the Fellowship of the Ring. So he uh, he, he doesn't. So he, he he's annoyed. By the fact that the the description of the journey of Bilbo and the dwarves from the Shire to Rivendell doesn't fit with the geography that he's already worked out. So he adds in a lot of the geography uh, and he and he changes the tone. He doesn't want to have the same uh, the same narrator tone that he had in The Hobbit. He doesn't want to do the children's book thing anymore. So he basically strips the narrator's voice of all that made it funny and endearing. So that it sounds like the same, thing, the same things happen, but it's really flat. In other words, the changes that he makes, that he starts making when he begins, when he does the first two chapters of the 1960 Hobbit, are really kind of flattening because they're mostly reductions. They're not additions. He doesn't actually reconceive the story, even, even to the same extent that he reconceived it in The Quest of Erebor. Um, so basically, right. how, how I've come to think about the films... Is a, as a thought experiment, if in 1960, Tolkien had actually been willing to say, all right, let's redo that chapter of the story to now actually make it fit with the characters as I've unfolded them, with the world as I've unfolded it, with the overall plot of the Third Age as, as I've described it, um, taking all of those things into account, let's do the Hobbit story again and and do it in a way so that it is not only consistent from beginning to end but also so that it is um so that it it actually fits with that larger world um and that's um that's what we see in uh you know so so basically That's a project which is, by necessity, by its very definition, is going to leave behind the actual events of the book at many times because the events of the book don't fit with that world always anymore. Um, You know, and I think... So, to me, this is the thought experiment that Peter Jackson and company are doing. And if you are undertaking that thought experiment, um, when you come to the Lonely Mountain, and if you ask the question... What would the Thorin that we meet at the Battle of Azanul-Bazar in, in Appendix A? What would the Thorn that we meet in the quest of Erebor? What would Gimli do? when he gets right. back to erebor would he cower on the mountainside and make speeches and shush bilbo and it, he has that one really awesome moment of leadership you know where he tells balin and fili and kili and bilbo to go into the tunnel the dragon shan't have all of us that's a really great moment for thorin but um but what uh, um It's impossible for me to imagine Thorin in particular or the dwarves in general as they come to be envisioned post Lord of the Rings. It's impossible for me to imagine those dwarves as opposed to the published Hobbit dwarves who were still largely comical children's story dwarves. It's impossible for me to imagine Thorin and them cowering on the side of the mountain. That would be... There is a way in which depicting what actually happens in the book would be less true to dwarves as Tolkien came to depict them than what Peter Jackson actually did. So what do you do? Um, and having Thorin confront Smaug, I can't imagine that Thorin wouldn't do that. I really can't. So again, In
2: parallel to Aragorn, that's like Aragorn going on the Pass of the Dead. I mean, that's, that's, you know, if you look at Thorne being sort of the Aragorn of this story, it does totally make sense that he would go in.
1: Yes, yes, of course he would go in. Of course he would go in. So, you know, and uh, it's, but again, this is really hard because um, in this, as in the, you know, the idea of an elf-dwarf romance, there's no response to, you know, a purist who says, but that never happens in Tolkien. You know that doesn 't happen in the books um, you know there is no evidence that any dwarf or elf ever found each other anything other than physically repulsive okay, I mean uh, obviously Gimli admi- admires Galadriel but um, but you know there's there 's certainly no evidence that 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 el- any elf ever found any dwarf less than ugly uh, at any point in tolkien 's work well no of course no no there 's not, and there 's no argument that that's that that, that 's the case. But this is what frustrates me about that. Is I find that really, really superficial. Okay, yes, all of the d- elves that we meet find the dwarves physically repulsive. Does that mean that that line is uncrossable? Um, you know, I. You know, and is that is is that crossing is the crossing of that line something which is intrinsically alien to the Tolkien world? And I say no. We get we get. Um, you know the we get love which bridges those kinds of divides at on several occasions in tolkien um and and well, you know, and with and with thorin here again the same thing no of course thorin doesn't do this yes of course it's a major change from the plot of the published hobbit but um is it in fact untrue to Thorin and the dwarves and the story, as Tolkien came to understand it, I say no. I, in, in this way, I think, this is why, you know, many people uh, uh, saw and commented on that article by Neil Stephens uh, that I uh, tweeted about um, several days back. Um... Where uh, uh, Neil Stevens, who wrote that article, uh, made the you know somewhat deliberately provocative statement uh, that the hobbits are truer to Tol- the hobbit films are truer to Tolkien's book than than, than Tolkien's Hobbit was, um, and of course that's a hyperbolically stated uh, <laughs> remark uh, on purpose. But um, but I, I, I actually think that I, I, in, in in a lot of ways I generally agree with him. The Hobbit, the published Hobbit, is more out of pace with the world that Tolkien came to depict than it, for for much of it, especially in the first half of it, than the films are, I think.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, especially if you think about the fact that he was writing Silmarillion-type legendarium material from the early, you know, the late 1910s. In those, even in the 19, late 1920s, early 30s, the Hobbit was out of pace with the rest of what he was writing. Absolutely, his,
1: it was a deliberate departure. Right, he wasn't trying exactly. to do the same thing, and and I think this this is this is to me not undermined but emphasized by the way in which he incorporates those Silmarillion elements into the Hobbit story, because when you look closely at them, and I've made this argument in other places, especially in my Mythgard class uh, on the Hobbit. When you look at many of those elements, and I'll, I'll, I'll point to one thing in particular, uh, the references to Gondolin. They're actually inconsistent, not only with the published Silmarillion, but with what he was writing about the mythology in the same year that he wrote The Hobbit. I mean, right at that, what he was writing at that time is inconsistent with it. In other words, he's not connecting the stories. He's recycling the idea, in some sense, of Gondolin. But the way he describes Gondolin and the orc's relationship to Goblin, you know, the Goblin's relationship to Gondolin. The way he describes that in chapter four of The Hobbit flatly contradicts the legend of Gondolin that he was currently writing at that time and any form it ever took thereafter. You know,
2: I, I have this picture of yeah. Dad like pacing the de- you know the, the, the study floor as the children are sitting on the floor listening and he's like pulling ideas, you know, as he's like creating this story sort of stream of consciousness and he would naturally pull that in. Like he used Fingolfin right. as the, you know, was the Orc King's name originally, and then had to go back and change it. But it yes. was because golf, you know, he wanted to make the golf pun. Exactly. So I definitely get the picture of him when he first formed the story of just sort of like pulling stuff out. And of course, he would pull in some stuff that. From things he's already writing, of but course, you're right, there's no connection.
1: He's got all there's this no material in connection. his mind. Yeah, he right. wants exactly. he wants somebody who bridges the 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 you know the world of humans and elves and is kind of this frontier figure. He's got Elrond. You know, he's right. got a character named Elrond who already exists and who can be recycled. But he's clearly recycled. Look at the description of Elrond in chapter three of The Hobbit. It contradicts the Silmarillion story of Elrond both right. at that time. And in the published Silmarillion, it's not—it's simply not true. Um, I spent—I don't even know how many years of my life um, trying to reconcile those two things. By the way, um, uh, the, that reference in The Hobbit always bothered me for some reason. That always kind of jumped out at me and bothered my teenage self quite a bit. The reference to how um, you know there were there were people in that time who had both elves and men uh, as ancestors, and uh, and Elrond was their chief. Um, And boy, did I try, you know, as soon as I read The Silmarillion, I like was holding the book sideways and trying backwards and forwards to reconcile that with the statement in The Hobbit um, and inventing all of these ways in which you could possibly construe it. But the fact is, you can't. It doesn't. Um, And again, the point is not that Tolkien is making mistakes, that's not at all what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is, when he wrote The Hobbit, he was doing something totally different. Taking these names, taking these ideas, and recycling them, and reusing them, and repurposing them in The Hobbit, but what he was doing in The Hobbit was a totally different thing. So again, the Hobbit films are the thought experiment, what if you tell the story of Thorin and Bilbo in a way which is, from the beginning, part of that world? Part of that story. Part of that tradition. And the fact is, Tolkien never did that. He never he never completed the process of naturalizing the Hobbit into that world. He did a bunch of things towards it, but he never fully, thoroughly did that. And the, the published Hobbit, even the revised published Hobbit, and even all of the things that he either started or fragments that he did and references that he made, there's a lot of material If you put it all together of his later rethinking of the Hobbit. But he still never actually did the full thing to reconsider and redo the Hobbit story within that world. Um, so I don't, for this reason, you know, I am not, going to hold the Thorin thing against him. Now, when I think about thematically, how does it work in the film? What is the core of that? To get back to our initial idea, what is the core of that? Thing? Well, the core of that is Thorin struggling with, re- with with his own identity, his being king under the mountain, the que- who is the real king under the mountain, um, and Thorin um, Thorin wanting to insist on that. Now, um, uh, the... Uh, and... And again, it's connecting, I think, to the you know <clears throat> light proactively standing up against dar- darkness um, theme. And with Thorin, it gets further complicated by the fact that you have, for Thorin at that moment in the film, not only the external darkness of the evil dragon who has taken over his kingdom um, that he has to go in and stand up against, but also his own darkness, that you know, the sort of moral darkness that is threatening to overwhelm him. And I do think that we are shown, and I wasn't expecting this, I do think that we are shown at the end of the film a Thorin who has... At least in one sense and at least at this moment conquered his dragon sickness I think that what we see of Thorin at the end is not a Thorin who is going further and further off the rails but a Thorin who has who has a good moment um I thought when we saw in that one late trailer um the line you know the line where Thorin says we will all burn to you know if we will burn we will all burn together um I first took that as um as basically Thorin off the rails. You know, I, I thought, I was like, oh boy, that sounded really bad. You know, I think that, I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing Thorin uh, in, in sort of an advanced state of moral corruption here. In the actual film, I didn't think that was how it came across at all. That, in fact, seemed to me to be a turning point for Thorin. Um, and his decision to take action, and when they go down and start the highly improbable sequence of events uh, down at the, at the Forges of the Dwarves, which I found practically ridiculous, but symbolically <laughs> really cool, um, uh, I, th- you know, that seemed to me a really positive step by Thorin. Timothy is asking, you know, is Thorin fighting the dragon sickness by conquering the dragon? Yeah, by by standing up against him, yes. And I thought even the way that it worked, the 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 significance, the symbolic significance, of Thorin taking not only a whole bunch of gold in the molten gold, but the very image of his grandfather, the very you know the image of the King under the Mountain, um, in in a molded gold statue. I mean that 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 is such a a a, a condensed symbol of of you know of Thor Thror and Thor's dragon sickness, and everything that Thorin could become—that it looks like Thorin is almost destined to 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 reenact—and he is not. Uh, he he is he's ha- he's ha- taking almost exactly the opposite posture uh, from his grandfather. Instead of gathering all the gold together uh, and sort of having his eyes turned inward and focusing on it, he's sacrificing the gold. He's using that gold as a booby trap. He's using that gold to fight against the dragon instead of just, you know, having this covetous relationship with it himself. Um, yeah, I, Brian, I, I exactly agree as as Brian was just saying. Everything leading up to that moment in the film was preposterous, but the payoff of those few seconds was so worth it. Brian, that's exactly what I agree, what what, what, what I felt. I was like, okay, that was kind of silly, but this, but, but worth it is exactly what I was thinking. That moment when he is confronting Smaug and Smaug, we see Smaug drawn to the gold, but, but Thorin has shaken himself free from it. And then you add on as Yana is pointing out, you know, the sort of Easter egg of the river of, of running gold, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the Lake town song made literally true. Loved it. Loved it. Now, um, I
2: have a question for you. Yeah. I have a question for you. Um, where where do you think, and I'm talking strictly movie now, we start out very clearly, Thorin, all he wants is for Bilbo to go in and get the Arkenstone. There is no consideration at that point of going in themselves and fighting the dragon. When we get to the point where he says we'll burn together, I think he's he's already made the decision. Where do you think he makes that decision? Where do you think he's he's it stops being about just grab the Ark and stone and then I'm going to go get my people and we're going to come back versus okay I need mean, now I need to go in and get them. I'm thinking it might be when he sees the burned dwarves, or, you know, uh, but I, I'm not sure.
1: I think it's earlier. I think it's when the secret door I think, opens. Oh, okay. um, oh really? I, I, oh, yes, okay. I think it's when the secret door opens. That moment and this was uh, you know the the the, the number one and I don't care if people are offended by this, this was the, what, the biggest moment in the movie that I was sitting there and I was actually thinking to myself, that is so much better than the book. So much better than the book. <laughs> When Thorin and ba- when Balin has that tearful mo- when we see the tears standing in Balin and Thorin's eyes as they cross the threshold and they re-enter Erebor for the first time, I cried. I, I both times I saw the movie, I cried at that moment. That was really moving and moving in exactly the way that we would expect Tolkien's dwarves to be moved when, when they have that moment, um, uh, that is, that was really powerful. And so for me, Trish, that's the moment when he's in okay. Erebor again, sense, he's not going to leave his own kingdom. Now, you know, I, right. he, he might've originally been thinking, let's open the secret door. Let's send in the burglar. Um, but if that had been his original thought when he's there in Erebor again, yeah, as Harold says, you know, he realizes I, he can't do it. The, you know, Harold is now. reminding me of the line. I know these stones. Yes. Um, once he is back now he is the king, he has returned to his kingdom and he is not gonna give it up and he is not gonna um he, he's not gonna leave without a fight. Um and, and again that that works for me, that makes sense to me. Um yeah. it makes a great deal more sense. I have a hard time reconciling um Thorin's reaction in the book, which is to turn and make that pompous speech to Bilbo about how now it's time for the burglar to earn his reward while they're all gonna sit outside and wait for him. Um <laughs> Thorin and in then that moment And they sit outside the and
2: all they do is reminisce. Yeah. Like, I mean, they sit outside and all they do is tell each other stories about the good old days.
1: Exactly. I, I can't reconcile that <laughs> with the Thorin that we get in Tolkien's later concept of Thorin um, and his later concept of the dwarves. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I do think that that's the moment. And who knows? I mean, it, it's kind of interesting the fact that we, we never really learn what their plan was. That is, we only hear about the, the theft of the Arkansstone. Once the secret door is open, this is news to Bilbo and news to us at that point. um <clears throat> so we never really know exactly the full extent of what their plan had been. You know, did they actually change it by entering the mountain? I'm not sure but uh um but certainly, in any case it's um it is a moment where uh where I think he that's sort of the moment of no of no return for him um, okay, well, we are over time. Oh, you notice I haven't bothered to. Cry. <laughs> I know, and Trish on, is, wa- is is waving the white flag here and totally giving this up on, on on raining us in. <coughs> um, well, we're gonna do. Maybe we save the review for next week. Maybe we, we lead with that. I don't even
2: know that we necessarily need to review. I mean, my feeling about well, I don't think we should because now we're going to really be time crunched when we start the riddles next Yeah, week. you're right. But um, first of all, I just want to, in my defense, I want, just want to say one of the reasons I let this go on is because this is our last time we're really going to be talking with any depth about Desolation of Smaug. So I felt this was more important than breaking to go through the riddles. Right. Um, what I yeah. would suggest maybe we do is just simply acknowledge who the winners were this year, thank our judges. And, you know, if you have anything specific you want to say, you know, or generally you want to say, Court, rather than go through every single riddle which people can easily get to um, on our site uh, we could do that to shorten the time
1: sure I mean, Sure. Do why don't you go through like I, the, I told uh,
2: Yana I mean people have you know people have kind of moved on now so we don't necessarily right. want to spend a whole lot of time on
1: right right on, no that does make a lot of sense Trish um, uh, so, why don't you go uh, you could uh, why don't you go through and do so the I, uh, the and answer and give yeah. the
2: answers okay alright let me do that oh the winners
1: yeah 20. yeah the winners is what I meant yeah
2: I got it. Okay. Yeah, so our top three winners this year um, were Scott Farmer at thirty point five points. And I'm trying to remember, I think there was a possible forty-three if I'm remembering. Forty
1: one. Right.
2: Forty one. Okay, yeah. yeah. We waited the right, a correct riddle answer was worth two points, a correct conundrum answer is worth one. That's how the that's how we come to forty one. So thirty point five for Scott Farmer, Jacob Sorensen was in second at twenty seven point five, and Brianna Melvin at twenty seven. So Bray won last year. She's still in the top three. She got the bronze this year, but, you know, that's still pretty darn good.
0: <laughs> yes. How still are you falling, Brianna? Overall And I want to thank
2: Brianna and Jana uh, Steiner-Redeker and uh, Stephen Schoenfeld were our judges this year, and I want to thank them for, for, t- for stepping up and taking on the job. And, in fact, those three are going to be um, p- uh, hosting the Digest this year probably it'll start a couple of weeks after our first riddle episode so sometime in february so you'll be hearing them uh, um on the uh, digest podcast
1: right right <clears throat> good good yes <clears throat> and i think uh you know um one of the things that's really fascinating about the process about sort of the the evaluation process is you know it's uh and it's, I think it's one of the things that makes the riddles a lot of fun is, you know, not only are they fun to talk about in advance, they're still fun to talk about afterwards. Um, and it, it is for me the thing that has made this whole process so uh, so intellectually stimulating and so rewarding is that, um, you know, it's, I find that these... Uh, these riddles are wonderful stimulants to analysis and to careful thought about the films. So even trying to go through and evaluate which one is the right answer is not is a no brainer. Um, is not a no brainer. That is to say, um, for the majority of the questions. Um, and you know, th- there's a lot of debate and discussion we could have. Um, you know, and I will say there are some of the answers that our judges decided were correct that I don't necessarily agree with. I would I would I would debate. Um, if uh if uh you know sort of if asked to to you know be analyzing the films and talking about them um but you know again to me that's what's that's what's really sort of it. Interesting about them, um, and I think it might be it might be fun. I'm sort of thinking about next year, and and, I, and I'm actually kind of wondering if it uh, if we might want to sort of expand that process a little bit for this coming year um, to kind of get m- more people involved with that that kind of uh, that kind of discussion. Um, so anyway, so w- we'll see how we're going to handle that when it, when we come towards the end of the season this year. Um, but yeah, for those oh of you who God. are who are new. <laughs> You're
2: striking fear in my heart,
1: Corey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, you know, one of the things that you can hear underlying that particular statement is if we were to do that, it would mean that we wouldn't have to end so soon. You know, uh, <laughs> a lot of people have been saying, well, what are we going to do next year when season three is done? Well, that will be the end of Riddles in the Dark. But for people who want to hang on to it a little while longer, we could still have some further follow-up discussions. Anyway, That's for those for those true. of you who are That's new, um, who have come into this uh, podcast series uh, late, I, you know, I just want to say we will, have, we will have voting starting next episode, which will be two weeks from today. Um, starting in our next episode, we're going to have our first Riddle of Season three, and you will be able to uh, to submit your vote for for that riddle. Once we finish with the riddles, which we're planning to do uh, by August or so, um, we will we will cut off the official. You know, if you want to officially enter the competition, you will have to submit your answers to the riddles that we will be asking um, by then. And then, uh, and then we will, we will tally our results and, and, and see who our winner is for, for, for later on. Um, but, uh, but we'll see our actual post, the actual mechanism that we have used, um, to do the riddles has been, um, in flux through the last two years. We used to use, uh, Facebook polls, but then Facebook, as they always do, went back and arbitrarily changed those so we can't do it the same way anymore. Um. But uh, anyway, so I think we're still we're still kind of perfecting the mechanism for. Um, yeah. And for this well, season. what we'll do
2: is we'll, we will be uh, posting. Um, it'll be like a PDF uh, ongoing um, uh, page that people can look at of our answers, you know, how we've answered. So it'll be the riddle and our answer. So basically we'll build the form. Right. Um, and then but nope, people can vote. We'll have people vote live, you know, in our in our episode. Um, but people won't actually be submitting their final, final, final answers until, you know, the, fi- the end of the game. Right. In the meantime, we can ch- chat about it on Twitter and on Facebook and on the Tolkien Professor page and all that good stuff. So, And the, and the folks on the Digest, that's their, the Digest is all about really um, talking about what people have been, um, how people have re- been responding to, to the Riddle episodes. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk about it, but um, people won't need to actually finalize their answers until the end of the game.
1: Yes, yes. Um, right, good. Um, so, just uh, to end, then we've got a, a, a couple uh, announcements. As I said, the, our first announcement is that two weeks from today we'll be starting. Um, we'll be starting our our. We'll, we'll be doing our next episode and starting the riddles. And our theme for the topic of our discussion next week will be: Are we doing? I forget. Are we doing the uh, the action sequence? I'm now blanking. Yes, action and violence. Yes. Next week. Action and violence in the Hobbit films. Um uh, yeah, buddy. That's going to be... <laughs> Dave has been really waiting to talk about this. I think this is a really important um, issue to talk about. And especially since this has been something that lots of people have observed, and I think with perfect justification. Um, but I also think that even even though I find the uh, The objection to the number the amount of violence and the number of action sequences in the Hobbit films is I find a perfectly valid criticism yet i f- I think that it seems there too that a lot of people are not really thinking about it enough. I would like to see more. Um, more actual analysis to think about how it works. What really are the, um, to what extent and in what ways does it uh, does it differ from what Tolkien does? What are, what are the consequences and the the, the sort of uh, you know the the what kind of results does it have for the films Um, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about that issue. We're going to be taking a serious look at that question uh, for next time Um, and thinking, of course, um, since we're going to be doing our first riddle, we're going to be thinking towards film three as well and not merely looking back at the desolation of Smaug. In that discussion, um, so that will be our topic for next week. Uh, other upcoming things we have, of course, uh, as many of you have also been involved with. I am currently doing through the Mythgard Academy a live class on Unfinished Tales. We just had two episodes, uh, two two sessions this past week, and have now finished the First Age material. Uh, from Unfinished Tales, and we're moving on to Numenor this coming week. So if you want to talk about Aldarion and Arendis and the Kings of Numenor and and all all three of the the first three Numenorean chapters uh, of the Second Age material of Unfinished Tales, feel free to join me. That's 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday evening. Uh, You can go to, uh, to the Mythgard Academy page. Again, just Google Mythgard and Unfinished Tales and you'll find it. Um, and we'll give you the link for, uh, for our session on Tuesday night. So you're, everyone is of course, welcome, uh, to, uh, to join me for that. That's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun and, um, been a, an, an increasing, um, number of people that have been joining in with that. I was kind of surprised to notice when I, uh, I, we, we post the files of that class to an iTunes U course as well, um. And when I logged into the iTunes U course to upload the files from Tuesday and Wednesday's class sessions this past week, I noticed that we've gained 1,000 subscribers on the iTunes U course over this past week. Um, there are now 1,400 people following that class on iTunes U, which is, which is really cool. So um, a lot of people have been joining us, and that's been great. Um, so it definitely, it's been, it, it's been a lot of fun. I felt like the conver- the discussion uh, that we had of Turin Turambar over the last three class sessions, really... Um, has been I, I I feel like I learned more about the Turin story uh, from those sessions than uh, anything than than any other time that I've really been studying it I I, I am I am way um, happier and more satisfied with the Turin story after that discussion than I've ever been I think it that, that's been really that's that that's been really fun um, so uh, so yeah so the next Riddles in the Dark session is in two weeks. The next Unfinished Tales session is next week on Tuesday, so just in a few days. Um, good. Is there uh, is there anything else? Oh yes, Trish. The 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 one last thing that we just wanted to mention. We don't have too many details that we can release yet. Uh, but for those of you right. who have uh, who were able to join us at MythMoot uh, this past year, that is the annual conference uh, of the Mythgard Institute. Um, uh, we have been doing some planning. We're much further ahead than we were last year this time, uh, <laughs> and actually planning this. And in fact, very soon, um, probably within the next couple weeks. Um, right. the next two or three weeks, probably, we're gonna. I'm gonna hold a, a live session for people who are sort of a, a general interest session, where I'm gonna be presenting to people the plans that we have <clears throat> for uh, for MythMoot, getting some uh, some feedback and ideas uh, from people to sort of run past you what we are thinking of right now. Um, so, for those of you who are interested to actually come and and uh, uh, and and join us for uh, for our conference, it has been a really fun. Uh, experience for all of us um, who have been able to make it. Uh, now, Yana is chiding me for taunting the Europeans and people who live oceans away. Now, Yana, I will say there there were there were a couple of Europeans who have made it to Mythmoot, but I, of course I understand <laughs> that it's very difficult and most people can't. Um, but you know, we're doing what 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 we can, Yana. Perhaps someday we will well, have. Yana's a
2: hop skipping away from the Greisinger Museum. So exactly,
1: I mean, you know, yes, can, uh, exactly. Can taunt us with that exactly you 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 have your own advantages and who knows perhaps someday we will uh we will do a a a mythgard europe uh uh conference that would be fun but um
0: hey, there's no nothing stopping people from organizing one
1: it's true yeah that's right if people want to do that talk to me we'll see what we can do <laughs> but um but anyway yeah that would be that would be that would be that would definitely be, a, be be a lot of fun and someday that might happen but we're not planning that right now um Uh, Alvin's asking, where is it going to be right now? We're thinking about, of, of Baltimore again, Baltimore is where it's been. Um, that has been a really convenient location. Um, uh, it's been a, it's the convenience of that location is something that we are having a hard time, um, replicating in other spots on the east coast uh so we will uh, we will be almost certainly uh, of course may suggests fairbanks alaska as being the second most (laughs) obviously convenient place uh to hold mith uh and i agree Dime, for for almost everybody else that would be probably more convenient but we're probably going to selfishly keep it well uh, except
2: see Corey drives to mith so fairbanks yeah, a little far. A little, it's
1: true. Far it's true. Drive. That would be. Oh my goodness, boy would my son be excited if we were going to drive to Fairbanks, though. He would love that. Though I have to think that driving to Fairbanks in January might not be a great idea. Uh, no. But anyway, um, <laughs>
2: well, you left that cat out of the bag. You just let a cat
1: out of the bag. Well, you know, January, December. I mean, heck, even in <laughs> even in the spring, it wouldn't be spring. Well, no, I'm mean, I'm not trying to hide it. You know, I, I, what what I'm doing here is a teaser announcement, so I'm willing That's to right. drop some That's teasers right. here. So. Uh, anyway, these are, these are the things that we're thinking of. So, just, so keep in mind, uh, just stay alert for future announcements about that. Um, uh, we're in, we're, we will be, we'll be inviting you guys to uh, join us for a, for a discussion of that. So anyway, I think that's all the announcement. Did I forget anything, Trish? I don't
2: think so. I think we're good.
1: Okay, well then I will thank everybody for joining us as always. And thanks for listening and Godspeed.